Well, good morning again, and it truly is exciting to be here with you this morning. We're grateful for those of you who've come and and joined us uh, this morning and grateful for uh, how God continues to to work in our lives. And uh, I've been excited about this passage here in Acts chapter 9. If you want to go ahead and begin making your way there, if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope you do. I've been excited about this passage in Acts 9 since we first started the book of Acts. In fact, I couldn't really couldn't wait to get to it, and uh, I told them in the first service, I think the Lord knew that, and maybe maybe the devil did too, which is why he killed my iPad, and I couldn't get to my notes, but it's okay. I wrote what was on those notes to begin with, and so uh, I'm excited about what God has, has shown me from this passage, and I want to be able uh, to, uh, to, to, to be able to share it with you today too. Acts chapter 9 is a great passage because it tells us a story of the conversion and the transformation and the change in the life of this one man named Saul of Tarsus. So impactful and so important is this change and so important is is this that it has been said that outside of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the, the next most important event that happened in the life of the church is what we're going to read about today about how Saul of Tarsus was completely saved from his, from his sins and gifted with eternal life and commissioned to go to the church. In fact, it's even been said by the church historian J. Graham Mason that, that, the, out, that, that the, in, in the, when the time of this happened, that the, the Christianity was really not seen as much more than a small Jewish sect. But 30 years following what happened, we read about today in Acts chapter 9, it is unquestionable that Christianity had become a major religion in the world and that the greatest person, the the person that the Lord used to propel it forward was none other than the Apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus, as we know, eventually begins to be known by his Greek name, Paul, later. And he's also known as the Apostle Paul because we recognize that he was sent by God himself, by the Lord Jesus, to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so his work there began to accomplish that. We also know this too, that apart from the writings that we get from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, we, there would be so many things doctrinally and theologically that, that would go unanswered for us. So he wrote so many things. He was a scholar, he was a theologian, and he was a missionary. But before all of that, he was a terrorist. He was a terrorist who, who worked and, and who, who pursued Christians with everything he had in it. And so what we see today and what we read in Acts chapter 9 is his conversion, his transformation, and his total life change. So I want us to read that today because I hope that what we'll see is that what happens with with Saul of Tarsus actually is a story that all of us who are believers can identify with. Even if our story may not be as dramatic in some of the ways that, that Saul's was, our story is no less dramatic. Our story is no less miraculous than his and there are elements of it which are the same. But I also hope and pray that today if we're here and we've got loved ones, whom we have prayed for and whom we have yearned to see them come to faith in Christ, that this story will be impactful and will be encouraging for us as we hear how God changed the life of this man. So begin reading with me there in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9 and we'll read down through verse 22. 
The word of the Lord says this, Then then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately... He preached the Christ in the synagogues, that He is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not He who destroyed those who called on this name in in Jerusalem and has now come here for that purpose so that He might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, thank You so much for Your mercy and Your grace. and Thank You for this passage and thank You for this Scripture that, that leads us into understanding just how deep and wide and vast Your love is for sinners like us. So I pray today that God, that you would encourage our hearts from this passage. and Father, help us to see ourselves in it, but help us to, to see the grace of God and how truly wonderful it is and, 
And then, Lord, encourage us from that to go and share that good news with others. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. So this passage is about Saul of Tarsus, and it's about his salvation. And it tells us some, some great things about him. And in fact, your outline this morning is going to reflect the things that we learn about Saul of Tarsus as we just move our way through the text. And so really that's, that's what the whole goal of it is, but I hope that it helps us not only see the flow of the text, but it also gives us encouragement and helps us to see how God has blessed us as well. And so the very first words of the text really confront us with something. It says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Well, So that tells us that, that we're dealing with the man that we were first introduced to back in chapter 7. In chapter 7, this was Saul of Tarsus from before whom all the coats of those who were throwing rocks to stone Stephen, they laid their coats down at the feet of Saul who looked on in a condoning fashion as they stoned Stephen to death. That's when we're first introduced to him there is at the end of chapter 7. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, we read that he went about ravaging the church. He went about creating havoc, causing havoc within the church. The word that's translated ravaging or, or creating havoc is a word that really means to tear it apart. It's the image of a, of a wolf that, that goes after a lamb to tear it apart. That's what Saul was doing to the church, particularly there in Jerusalem. He was tearing it apart and completely trying to arrest Men and women didn't matter to him. If they were followers of the way, he was putting them in jail. And then sometimes it's even insinuated that he engaged in even brutal, brutalizing them or even, even killing them. Now it's interesting the way that, that Luke refers to this group that, that Saul persecuted. He, he went after people who were of the way. And this is the first time of which that phrase is used to describe Christians. We'll see it more toward the latter part of Acts as, as, as Luke continues to write. But it's interesting, they, they refer to Christians as members of the way. And scholars say that the reason it was referred to in this way was because they were pulling their identity directly from that word that Jesus had said about himself in John chapter 14, where he said, I am the way the truth, and the life. And so as a shorthand, Christians began to be known as people who were of the way. And what we realize is that Saul of Tarsus was going after those believers and he was bringing them in. So much so that we recognize, notice the first thing that we understand about Paul there on your outline, he was determined and driven to destroy Christ's disciples. Determined and driven to destroy Christ's disciples. Disciples. Now we see that continuing here in this passage because what does he do? He goes to the chief priests and he asks for letters, really extradition letters. He wanted the authority from the chief priests there in Jerusalem to be able to take these letters to the synagogue in Damascus, some 150 miles away, six-day journey. He wanted to go there so that he might find all the Christian believers who were there and arrest them and bring them back bound to Jerusalem to face trial. You see, Damascus was an important city in that first century world. And it is said that they had a very large segment of their population were believers. And that comes from church history and annals that come later that there were as many as five or 10,000 of them that were killed there at one point. 
And so a large group of Christians are living there in Damascus. And we also know that based upon Acts chapter 8, when Paul began to persecute the church, many fled Jerusalem and traveled to other places. Damascus was one of those significant cities. And so Saul went there, determined, driven by his, by his hatred of this heresy that he believed was being perpetuated by these people of the way to bring them and to persecute them and destroy them and bring them back to Jerusalem. You see, Paul was one who was educated in the Old Testament law and, and he truly believed that, that Christianity, that this, this worship and, and veneration of, of Jesus Christ was, was a heretical thing to do. And he intended to stomp it out. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament says that anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And yet, in Paul's mind, here these Christians are worshiping a man who was crucified on the cross and they're telling everybody that he rose from the dead. And you can almost hear it in Paul's mind, I will not stand for that. I will, I will stomp that heresy out and I will do it because of my, my devotion and my righteous devotion to God. So we see Saul is a man determined and driven to destroy Christ's disciples and he is making his way there to Damascus. But notice the next thing that we learn there. It says there, as he journeyed in verse 3, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The second thing that I want you to see that we learn about Saul here from this text is that he was surprised and suddenly stopped by the Savior. He's surprised and suddenly stopped by the Savior. He's on a mission. As a matter of fact, from the text and the context of it, you get an idea that he's coming near to Damascus. He's almost there. He's probably got a full head of steam about what he's about to do when suddenly a light shines from him. Now, if you, if you, I told you that, that, that this is recorded for us three times in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. You get three recordings of this event. The last two come from Paul's own lips. This one comes from Luke's account of it. When you look at what happens in Acts 22 and Acts 23, 26, Paul says, look, it happened at noonday. It happened at midday when the sun was out. He's traveling in the middle of the day. Now, think about this. You're out in the middle of a road. You're walking, going into a major city, and you're at the middle of noon when, when the bright sun is shining at its brightest. Suddenly, there is a light brighter than the sun that shines down on you, blinds you completely, and throws you to the ground. I'd say that was a surprise. I'm saying that, that Saul of Tarsus was not expecting that. And the suddenness of it threw him to the ground. Now, what does something like that? How, how do you explain something like that? Well, I might refer you back to a passage that is recorded in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke about Jesus who went up on this mountain and He took Peter, James, and John with Him when He went up there and that mountain became known as the mountain of transfiguration because while he was there with those three disciples, Jesus in effect just sort of pulled back 
the raiment of his human flesh and allowed them to see him for just a moment in the fullness of his, the brightness of his glory and that he is light of very light. So bright, in fact, that his son shone like his face shone like the sun and his clothes even became white with the light of his glory. They were able to see him for just a moment that way. Jesus himself even declares of himself in John's gospel multiple times, I am the light of the world. It is Jesus Christ who is brighter than the noonday sun. And it is none other than Jesus Christ who encounters Saul on this road to Damascus as he has the intent of his heart to go there and to persecute these Christians. But he is surprised and suddenly stopped by the Savior. Not only was it light that Saul encountered, but you notice it was also a voice. He says this to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, when I was growing up, my mother's here, um, and she and I have always been cool. We've been close. You see, I've been a mama's boy from way back. Dad and I, on the other hand, used to mix it up a little bit and And when dad would call my name, Craig, get over here. Craig, what are you doing? Craig, one Craig was fine. If it ever went Craig, Craig, that's when bad stuff started to happen, right? I don't know that that's exactly the case here. But I can assure you when Jesus began to speak in the fullness of his glory being displayed on that road and called Saul's name twice, I guarantee you he had Saul's attention. He had his attention at this point. And he asks a question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know what's interesting about that question? Is that all along Saul had thought he was persecuting heretical teaching people of the way of Jesus who didn't know better and needed to be quieted. He thought that he was just persecuting a sect of Judaism that needed to be shut down. But who he was actually persecuting was Jesus himself. Because Jesus identifies with his church. He is brought into union with his church. In fact, when Paul would later write it, when we are baptized into Christ, we become in union with him. To the degree that when Saul was persecuting Christians, he was actually persecuting the bride of Christ whom he had given his life for. And Jesus says, you're not just persecuting faceless people out there, you're persecuting me. It's not any different today. When the church comes under fire and under persecution today, do not think for one second that it goes unnoticed by the one who gave his life for his bride. And so here he says, you're persecuting me. And, and, so, and so Saul, he's thrown on the ground. And he's like, wait a minute. Who is it that we're talking to? Lord, Lord, who are you? And then Jesus reveals himself. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So at this point, Saul's figured something out that he didn't know. All his life, all of his adult life, He had committed himself to serving God. 
He had studied the Old Testament Scriptures. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he would later claim. Studied under Gamaliel, the top religious authority in Jerusalem. He had all of this knowledge and he truly believed with all of his heart that he was pursuing the Lord with everything he had. But what he wound up finding out here is that he had been running the wrong way. He'd been pursuing the wrong goal. He'd been fighting for the wrong team. He'd been fighting for the losing team. And here he is stopped, dead in his tracks. Jesus says, it's me you've been persecuting. Now, some of your versions don't have the next words that you have there. In fact, when I was reading through them, you were trying to find it. And I get it. This is another one of those places where, like we saw, I believe it was last week, where a scribe has come along later and, and, and given us these words and added them into the original text for clarity. Here's what I want you to know. Don't be upset by that. Don't let that mess you up. Because everything that I read for you that is included in the King James and the New King James here is also, you will find it in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. In Paul's on recounting of what occurred. In fact, it's Acts chapter 26 when he stands before King Agrippa that Saul says this, or Paul says, he says, Jesus introduced himself to me as the one whom I was persecuting. And then he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now the question for us is, what does that mean? What's a goad? Well, as I understand it, a goad particularly in this time was a, was a, a, a wooden uh, piece of, of wood that had been chiseled down and, and, and carved out so that it had a sharp point on one end and was could be held in the hand on the other side and that a farmer would typically use a goad like that to, to hit the hind parts of an ox to get the ox to move in the direction that he wanted him to go. A poke, a prod to get that animal to move in the direction that he needed to go. But sometimes that ox would resist against that and would kick back against that goad. It would kick against the pain, not wanting to move forward. It would kick against that that was pushing it to go that direction. And when that would happen, it would create even more difficulty for the animal to the point where it eventually would move in the direction that the farmer wanted it to go. With that image in mind, we have this question here where Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What that tells us is, is that even though the shining light here is undoubtedly Jesus introducing himself to Paul directly, there had been many moments in Paul's life prior to this occasion where Jesus had been prodding him, had been goading him, had been pushing him toward the truth. What could those occasions have been? Well, we were not really told, but I would suggest one of them to you would be when Stephen was stoned. If you go back to Acts chapter 7, you realize that Stephen, when he was being stoned by those, his face shone like the, the light of day because he was looking to God and his face was, was shining, kind of like what we see with Moses in the Old Testament. That had to have stood out to Saul when he watched that happen. He also would have heard Stephen's prayer who, who asked the Lord not to hold the sin of those who were stoning him and condoning his death against them. How did that not just penetrate his heart? In fact, we know later that, that that story never left Saul's mind. He always played that back over and over and over again. And I believe that was at least one of the goads that the Lord used to push him toward the truth of the gospel, the truth of his resurrection, the truth that he was continuing to persecute and push against. Might I say that there may be some of you in this room that fit in that same category? 
maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you've never really come to faith in Jesus, but if you're honest, you know that the Lord has been pushing you. He's been prodding you. He's been goading you in some ways to, to push you toward the truth and reveal Himself to you, reveal the truth of the gospel to you. May I just say to you this morning, it's hard. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The grace and the mercy of God are in those hard moments that push you in the direction that you need to go. And so rather than kicking against them, might I just offer for you to humble yourself before the one who is pushing you in the direction of truth. It is a measure of grace. It is a measure of mercy. There's that part, and then there's the next part. Verse 6, so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Some of you don't see that question either, but in Acts chapter 22, Saul says very clearly, I said, what do you want me to do, Lord? And here's the point that I think is so important to recognize. You see, Saul here knew who it was he was talking to by this point. He asked the question earlier, Lord, who are you? Jesus responded, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. Follow that question up with this one, Lord, what do you want me to do? May I say to you, I think that that is one of the most important questions that any of us could ever ask. Saul asks it with a full understanding of to whom he is posing his question. He is posing it to Jesus, the one whom he had formerly persecuted, the one who he didn't believe was alive, but that now he was right here and the resurrection was absolutely proven true to him. The fullness of his power had been proven true to him. And so he had been overpowered by one greater than he was. And so his question is, Lord, what do you want me to do? Let me just say to you, Confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord is the most important thing that you could ever do. The Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul wrote those words later in Romans chapter 10. I can't help but believe they were influenced by this exact issue right here. As he were there prostrate there before Christ Himself, Lord, what would you have me to do? May I also say this to you that it is incongruent to ask that question, Lord, what would you have me to do? Him reveal to you what He wants for you to do and for you to do something else. You can't claim Him to be Lord and Master of your life and yet choose to go in a direction other than the direction that He leads you. So obedience has to follow one's confession of faith and one's confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then notice what happens. The Lord says to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now the guys that were traveling with Saul didn't hear that. Didn't, they, they, they heard something, but they didn't know exactly what was said. They saw something, but they didn't know exactly what was going on. But Saul arose from the ground. He didn't see a man. He was blinded. He didn't, he didn't know anything else. But those that were with him led Saul by the hand into Damascus. Now think about this. Here was Saul, the one who was just breathing these threats, blowing all of this venom out on all of these Christians. He was ready to go into Damascus and take it by storm. Full of vim and vigor, he was ready to go. And yet, when he got there, he was led as a meek little lamb by the hand 
into the city. Let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ comes and gets a hold of your life, He can change things. You may believe that you've got things going a certain direction and feel that you have everything happening in a certain way. But when the God of heaven decides to step into your life, He can change things very quickly. As a matter of fact, notice the next thing that we notice about Saul in this text. He was conquered, converted, and completely changed. When we first meet him, he's, he's determined and driven to go destroy Christ's disciples. But then Christ himself surprised him and suddenly stopped him. And now he's conquered and he's converted and completely changed. And then we get into Damascus. And you know, not everybody, though, was willing to buy in to Saul. As a matter of fact, the Lord appeared to Saul and says, I know you're blind. And, and Saul is there. He spent three days praying and fasting. And, and, and we learn later that he was praying during that time. I'd have been praying too if I was him. If I'd spent my entire adult life pursuing one goal and had been made to know in just a matter of days that I had been pursuing the wrong goal, running hard in the wrong direction, I'd spend some time praying too which is exactly what he was doing. But God had given him a vision. The Lord had come to him and said, there's a man named Ananias that's going to come lay his hands on you and you're going to get your sight back. And so he was praying and he was waiting on that day to come. At the same time, the Lord revealed himself to a certain disciple named Ananias. Now that's the way that that Luke describes him. Saul, or excuse me, Paul describes him differently in Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 22, he says he was a devout man well-known, obedient to the Word. He was a man with whom many people, many of the Christians there in Damascus would have been familiar. In fact, he was a man with a lot of clout. He was one, might I say, he may have very well been target number one for Saul of Tarsus when he got to Damascus to arrest. And Saul's reputation went before him because Ananias says, Lord, I've heard about this man. I know what he's coming here to do. In fact, I would even almost suggest that that Ananias said, Lord, him being blind over there in another house and unable to do anything for himself is probably the best case scenario for all of us Christians here in Damascus. He nearly balked at what God said, but as I told you earlier, You can't confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Master and refuse to do what He tells you to do. So we see obedience here on Ananias' part. He goes to this, this house of a man named Judas on Straight Street in Damascus. I'm told that there's still a Straight Street in Damascus today. Even though it's slightly different in how it's lined up, there's still one there. And he goes to this house of a man named Judas and he knocks on the door. And I can only imagine that as the door opens up, there's someone looking at him and kind of gives him a knowing nod, invites him in. And he goes back and here, prostrate on the floor, is this man who everybody was so fearful of. And notice what happens. He lays his hands on Saul and he says to him, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. John R.W. Stott in his 
in his commentary on this passage says these, he never reads these words without being completely astounded. That it is very likely that the first Christian words that were spoken to Saul of Tarsus came from the lips of Ananias, welcoming him in to the fraternity of Christ, calling him brother. That leads me to the fourth thing that I want you to see. What I want you to see is that Saul found family in his former foes. The ones whom he had persecuted now became his very friends. They became the ones that that he surrounded himself by. They were brothers. They, They had a commonality among them. They had something that connected them that was even deeper and more significant than blood. They had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he calls him brother Saul. That's why we still use that language today because it it signifies the relationship that believers have with one another. That we have a Father in heaven who loves us and through our, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has brought us into a family. And for Saul, he realized that the former foes, the ones that he were... He was persecuting. Even Ananias himself ended up becoming his very family, his very brother. Notice also what happened. He received food. He was strengthened. It says scales. Something like scales fell from his eyes. That's always been interesting to me. I've always wondered what that means. The word in Greek, it's the same word used to describe the scales on a fish or the scales on a snake, the the, the things that, that would cover and that something like that had covered his eyes and that it fell from his eyes at this moment. And he was able to see. And he ate. And he was strengthened. And he spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And then that didn't notice what happens. The fifth thing that we see occur in this text is that Saul then preached and proclaimed the one that he had previously persecuted. He began to preach and proclaim Jesus the very one that he had, he had said, look, that man's dead, he never rose again, and you guys are crazy for following him. Now he's in the synagogue preaching that. And the people in the synagogue couldn't get over it. They're like, isn't this the same guy that was persecuting us earlier, and now he's a changed man? And then Luke says this, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews and dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Undoubtedly, what we see in this text is that this man who was once completely determined to destroy Christ's disciples is now one of them. He has now been completely changed. He was converted, he was transformed, and he was changed. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The grace of God can transform any transgressor. It can save any sinner. It can redeem any wretch. Because it happened to me. You see, that's the beautiful part of this story. This is the story of the Apostle Paul. But if you're here this morning and you are a confessed believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are so many significant things here that parallel what happened to you. You see, there was nothing about about Saul of Tarsus that he had ever done that deserved the Lord Jesus Christ coming to him on that road to Damascus. In fact, I think it's very clear to say that the the ruler of heaven 
had every right to confront this rebel heart on that road to Damascus and strike him dead. He had every, it would have been certainly within his purview to have done such as that. But he didn't. Instead, he came to him in grace. He came to him in mercy. Instead of, instead of striking him down, he'd just been prodding him. He'd just been goading him to push him in the right direction. He finally came to the place where he revealed him in the full effulgence of his glory and told him exactly who he was. He overpowered him. He captured his heart by grace. And may I say to you that there's not a one of us sitting here this morning that that has not happened to us if we name the name of Christ. That He has come to us and captured us by His grace. The Bible says that all of us are sinners. That no one of us have ever gone through our lives apart from from constantly going back to the things that we know are wrong. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. God has every right to deal with us as He does with sinners. But in His grace and in His mercy... He extends it to us just as He did with Saul. And when we come to grips with that fact, we we trust in Him, we, we confess Him as Lord, and we begin to move forward in repentance and obedience to Him, then He changes our lives from the inside out. He, he begins to do a great work within us. He gives us oftentimes times just like He did with Saul to begin to really process everything that He's done. But then he, he commissions us to go out and share that good news with others. We're not to keep it to ourselves. And so Saul was a changed man. And I want you to know the grace of God can transform anyone. Anyone. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. You cannot sink low enough that God's grace cannot reach you where you are. God's grace can transform any transgressor and save any sinner and redeem any wretch. Many of you are familiar with the name John Newton. John Newton was born in the 1700s. He ended up joining the... He was a a midshipman in the Royal Navy of England. That job led him ultimately to become a, a slave trader in which he would be on boats going down ships that that traveled to West Africa where they would round up slaves and bring them back and sell them in England. And he confessed to the fact that in that that period of his life that, that he mistreated and tortured countless slaves that, that they got there in, in, in Africa and brought back to England. It was said that he was a man... Who, whose language and lifestyle was so lewd and lascivious that it caused sailors to blush. He was a man who was morally corrupt. And yet, I forget the date, he was on his ship out in the middle of the ocean and a storm came upon that ship and the water began to flood into his birthing area, into his room. And his own testimony was is that he fell to his knees and he cried out to God for the first time in a very long time and that God began to do a miraculous work in his life. Showed him mercy. 
showed him grace. He eventually left the slave trade industry. In fact, later in his life, he joined forces with William Wilberforce and testified before Parliament in England to the horrific nature of the slave trade. And his testimony was one of the key things that were needed for Parliament to ultimately outlaw the trading of slaves. He not only partnered up with William Wilberforce, he he also partnered up with William Cowper, who was a, a hymn writer. Many of the hymns that Cowper wrote, we sing. John Newton himself began to even write some of those. And as he got to the end of his life, he was 82 years old, and he said this about himself, and I'm going to see if I can actually find this on this, because I want to read it to you. This is important. He never got over the amazing nature of God's grace. And so at 82 years old, Newton is quoted as saying this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and I remember that Christ is a great Savior. I am a great sinner, but I remember that Christ is a great Savior. I want you to know that is the testimony of one who recognizes that his life was in the pits and that God in His great mercy reached down and pulled him out. He didn't pull himself out. It was God that pulled him out. His tombstone reads this. John Newton, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Brothers and sisters, let me just tell you, the grace of God can transform any transgressor. It can save any sinner. It can redeem any wretch because it redeemed me. John Newton was also the man that wrote the words of the song that would probably all of us would be in our top five all-time favorites. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Can I just say to you here this morning, if you've been running from God's grace, if you've been resisting His prodding in your life, if you've been kicking against the goads and the grace and the mercy of God as it's been reaching out to you, May I say to you this morning that Jesus Christ stands before you as the full effulgence of the glory of God. He stands before you as the light of the world. And He invites you to come to Him. Humbly to, call, to fall before Him and to confess Him as Savior and as Lord. And then to rise from that place and say, Lord, now what do you want me to do? Because my life is in your hands. I'll go where you want me to go and I'll do what you want me to do. If you continue to kick against the goads and you continue to fight against Him, I want you to know that one day, one day you, He will deal with you in justice. One day that, that appeal to you will go away 
And His grace and His mercy will be replaced by punishment. But while today is today and this is a day of grace, you can fall before Him and confess Him as Lord. I also know that there are some of you in this room that great, have a great burden. There are family members, there are loved ones that you have talked to and witnessed to and prayed for and they continue to continue to push against and travel down the road that you know leads to destruction. Be encouraged because the grace of God can transform any transgressor. The grace of God can save any sinner. The grace of God can redeem any wretch. Do not give up. Do not stop praying for them. Do not stop sharing the good news of the gospel with them. Because God, the God who still saved John Newton and the God who saved Saul of Tarsus and the God who saved me still saves sinners. Keep praying. Brothers and sisters, this this is the Word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank You for this Word. And thank you for this text that is so live. By that I just mean that it's real. It's it's fleshy. It's, it's, It's right here in front of us in this room because so many of us have our own testimonies that parallel Saul of Tarsus' testimony. And there's so many of us that are praying for people who will come to faith that currently right now have no interest in it whatsoever. So Lord, I thank you for this word and I thank you for a reminder of your grace and your mercy and I pray that you would use it to strengthen us. Father, I pray that it would encourage the hearts of those who are here that are burdened for others. Lord, I pray for one that may be here today that has never fallen before you in humility, confessed their sins, believed upon you, the resurrected, crucified and resurrected Christ, that today would be that day, that they would not kick any further and that they would not try to run any farther away from you. But today would be the day that they would trust in you as Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray that you would do that, not because any of us deserve it, but because you're good. I pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.